Well, church, go ahead. If you've got a Bible, open up to Colossians chapter 2. And if you're at home, I'd encourage you guys as well to open up your Bibles to Colossians 2. We've got some extra Bibles in the back uh, by the offering box there if you want to grab one of those. We're not going to have a text up on the screens today, trying to simplify a little bit. And so it it would be great if you had God's Word in front of you, either on a phone or a, or a, a paper version. And as you're turning there, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about Fool's Gold. All right, Fool's Gold. Fool's Gold is the nickname for a mineral called pyrite. And uh, geologist uh, John isn't here to fact check me on this, so I'm just going to keep going with it. Uh, but pyrite, you see, or fool's gold, it, it, it looks a lot like gold, right? The way the light reflects off of it, the way it feels, the way it looks from a distance and even up close, and it, it can appear like gold. And therefore, it appears that it has some value to it, just like gold does, And people have stumbled across pyrite, and they have thought that they have stumbled upon a treasure, something that's very valuable. And in the end, it's only found to be fool's gold, uh, which is essentially worthless. Back in the 1500s, there was an English explorer who was exploring parts of Canada, and he came across something that he thought was this huge uh, uh, mining place of gold, and he got excited, and he went back to England, and he got more investors to invest with him, and even the Queen of England invested and backed him financially. He went back to Canada. He started a mine, and he started shipping uh, thousands of tons of this material back to England. There were some shipwrecks. People People lost their lives, but in the end, thousands of tons of this mineral got back to England only to be discovered after some more testing and examination that it was fool's gold. It was pyrite, and it was essentially worthless, and it ended up being used as gravel for the road, not what this man was expecting it to be used for. The pyrite had fooled him, right? It had deceived him. It, it appeared to be real treasure and to have some real value, but it was found to be worthless. And church, every man, woman, and child in here this morning, we are a treasure hunter. All right, did you know that? Did you know that you guys are treasure hunters? God tells us then in Ecclesiastes that he's put eternity into our hearts, and therefore our hearts long for a lasting treasure. We do. We, we long for a treasure that is going to hold its value for eternity. Our hearts long for this lasting treasure, a treasure that will last. But sadly, many of us, we've been deceived by things that we thought were real treasures, only to discover that in the end, they are fool's gold. They are worthless. For some of us, it's been our money. For some of us, it's been our power or our status. For some of us, it's been our relationships or our accomplishments or even our knowledge. We seek treasure. We seek something valuable that will have lasting value, and yet we are surrounded by fake treasures. Fake treasures. And the church in Colossae, they were treasure hunters as well. 
And one of the reasons Paul is writing this letter is that there were some false teachers that had come to the city and had come to the church, and they had been promising some false treasures or some fool's gold, if you will, to the people. And Paul hears about this through the church planter Epaphras, and he writes this letter to the Colossians in order that no one may be deceived or led astray after these false treasures. And you remember, we have titled this series in Colossians, we've titled it Mature in Christ. Mature in Christ. Because as we study this letter, we want to understand more and more what it means to grow in spiritual maturity. What it means to grow up in Christ, to be mature in Christ. And this morning, we're going to learn that one of the ways we grow in maturity is that we learn to not be deceived by fake treasures or false teaching. A person who is maturing in Christ must grow in their understanding as to what has lasting value and what does not. And so this morning's sermon is a call to all treasure hunters, okay, to journey with me through these verses that we might no longer be deceived or led astray by fake treasures, but instead to find our real and our lasting treasure that we've been longing for. And so are you guys ready to journey with me, treasure hunters? Are you ready? Okay, let's go. So why don't you guys stand with me? I'm going to read these five verses. Stand with me out of respect for God's word as I, really, as I read Colossians 2, 1 through 5. Colossians 2, 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. These are your people. I ask that you would equip me for the task at hand. Help me proclaim what is right and what is true. And Lord, help us receive it in a way that, that, that we do not quickly forget, but in a way that takes deep root in our heart and tra- transforms us and changes us. Lord, please make much of yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it might be helpful first, before we start our journey, to really understand what this fake treasure or what this false teaching was that, was, that were possibly deceiving and leading the Colossians astray. And unfortunately, in the letter to Colossians, we, we can't say for certain what the exact false teaching was, okay? Scholars and theologians, they're kind of divided over this as to what exactly it was, whether it was an early form of Gnosticism or Jewish mysticism or a mixture of some pagan beliefs. So we don't know for sure what the exact false teaching was, but we do know some things, all right, we do see some things in Paul's letter to the Colossians. What, what we do know 
is that some of this false teaching was depending on, it was dependent upon human tradition and rituals, okay? We see that play out throughout the letter to Colossians that Paul is speaking against some of these human tradition and rituals like food restriction and circumcision. And we're going to have the circ talk in a couple of weeks, all right? So that will be coming up. We'll talk about that. Uh, but, but, but something in here, in this false teaching, it had to do with more human tradition or some of the, the Jewish kind of Old Testament purification rituals. We know that from this letter. We also know in this letter that there was some false teaching about angels. There was a really big emphasis on angels and possibly even the worship of angels. What we know about these false teachers is that they were arrogant teachers. They were puffed up with pride. And not only were they arrogant and prideful teachers, but what these false teachers were essentially trying to do is they were trying to undermine the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. That, right? You want to know what the heart of it was. These false teachers were trying to undermine the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is first, and the sufficiency of Christ, that Christ is enough. That's what they were trying to undermine. These, these teachers were essentially teaching that Jesus, hey, Jesus was not a sufficient treasure for his people. Like, yes, Christ is nice, but how about you add a little worship of angels to that treasure? Make it a little better, right? Like, yes, Christ is nice, but how about you add a little dietary restrictions to that? Yes, Jesus is an okay treasure, but how about you add some physical health and wealth to that treasure? Wouldn't that be an even better treasure? And church, unfortunately, not much has changed today, okay? False teachers are the same today. They say, yes, right, Jesus might take care of you, but how about you add some self-care and self-help to that as well? Wouldn't that be even a better treasure for you? They try to teach that he's not a sufficient treasure. And I've been trying to, these last few weeks, trying to think about and discern what's the most concise way to describe false teachers both back then and right now, because really not much has changed. A lot of false teaching sounds, it sounds pretty good at first, right? It, it, and most of it sounds right, but then there's just like something not right about it, right? There's something off that just doesn't make your spirit settled when you hear it. And, and here it is. I think, you know, this is a, a working, concise statement, but I think this is what I can best and most concisely describe the false teachers both then and now as. False teachers want to add to Christ whereas true Christian teachers want to press into Christ, okay? False teachers want to add to Christ, whereas true Christian teachers want to press into Christ, okay? And so when you're listening to someone or you're reading a blog or you're reading a book or you're listening to a podcast, the question you need to be asking yourself to discern if this is good teaching is, is this person trying to add to the person and work of Jesus Christ or are they pressing into the person and work of Jesus Christ? So treasure hunters, do not be deceived. Do not be led astray. Jesus is our supreme and sufficient treasure. And if you don't want to be deceived by fake treasure and you want to enjoy the real treasure, which is Christ in you, then look with me at verse 1 and let's watch how this plays out. Okay, Colossians 2 verse 1. He writes, For I want you to know 
how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Okay, Paul is writing to brothers and sisters in Christ who he has not even met, and he writes, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. A struggle. That word struggle, it's getting at the idea of being in agony, of fighting and contending for someone. He's struggling for them. He's agonizing for them on their behalf. He's contending for them. He's fighting for them. Well, well, how was he struggling for them? How was he struggling for them? I think we get some insight into that by flipping over to Colossians 4. So go ahead and flip over to Colossians 4, verse 12. And I say that we get some insight into it because in Colossians 4, verse 12, we get to see how his student, Epaphras, is struggling for the Colossians. And wouldn't it make sense that a student would struggle for them in the same way that a teacher would? And look at how Epaphras is struggling for them in Colossians 4, verse 12. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Church, did you know that praying on behalf of others, it is a struggle? Did you know that? And it's okay that it's a struggle. Like, don't be deluded into thinking that everyone else, when they pray, they just are kind of prancing around in this blissful, like, hours of prayer for other people, and you're the only one that it's hard for. No! Prayer is difficult. It is a struggle. Listen, when I pray for you, it's a struggle to pray for you all the way through. It's first, it's a struggle to get started. It's a struggle just to make the time and the space to get names in front of me, to get prayer requests in front of me. Like, it's a struggle just to get started. It's a struggle then while I'm praying, right? It's a struggle to not get distracted. It's a struggle to not get discouraged. It's a struggle to fight off the lies that I'm not being productive with my day or being efficient with my day. I have to fight off the temptation and the thoughts of wondering if this is even any benefit of anyone to at all. It's a struggle. Praying for one another is a struggle. And yet, in order to not be deceived by fake treasures, Christians must struggle on behalf of one another in prayer. In prayer. Struggle on behalf of others in prayer. It's not easy, but it's so worth it. We're going to see why. And not only should we be struggling on behalf of one another in our prayer, but, but we should have hearts that are willing and wanting to struggle in other ways on behalf of others, right? I mean, uh, how else could you be struggling on behalf of others? How about with your schedule? How about with your time? Like some of you are really selfish with your time and you have not even given a thought as how you could maybe struggle with your calendar and your time on behalf of others to see others get to the treasure they are pursuing. 
Maybe it's your finances. Now, I know most of us would say, yeah, we struggle with our finances, but I'm not talking about that kind of struggle. The, the, the typical struggle with our finances is we're struggling to figure out how we can buy more stuff we want, and it's just not all adding up, right? I'm not talking about struggling with your finances in that way. How about struggling with your finances for the sake of others? Like, like working on your budget in a way that you can leverage what God has given you to see gospel ministry continue in the church and in both the local and the universal church as well as serving the poor like how have you been struggling with your finances on behalf of others the question is do we have hearts that are willing to struggle on behalf of others both in our prayer lives and in all of our lives do we have hearts that are willing to struggle on behalf of others here's the problem though it's probably the obvious problem in the room we don't like to struggle we don't like to be in agony, right? I mean, I don't even like to struggle for things that benefit me, let alone struggle to benefit someone else. And therefore, any time uh, like some fool's gold type of false teaching comes around that promises a way around the struggle, we quickly jump to that, right? Like, you, you watch, you hear some biblical teaching that's coming straight at your heart, that teaches the way of Jesus, that teaches you how to follow him through the pain and suffering and hardship, and you watch, you're going to analyze that, right? You're going to break that down and be like, well, is that really what he's saying? What is it in the original? Um, I, do I even have the right version, right? Let me, like, uh, fact check this a little bit. But then a teaching comes around that promises you a way around the struggle, and we jump at that at first glance, like, no questions asked, right? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going there. But church, the way to enjoin true treasure, both for ourselves and the person sitting next to us, is not around the struggle. It is through the struggle. It's through the struggle. And church, can you imagine what kind of church this could be if we were full of people who struggled on behalf of one another? A church that was full of people just getting after it in prayer for one another. A church who was willing to struggle so that the person next to them might enjoy the fullness of the treasure that they're pursuing. In order to not be deceived by fake treasure, Christians, we must struggle. We must struggle on behalf of one another. But here's some good news. We are not called to struggle alone. We are not called to struggle all by ourselves. Look back at verse 2, all right? Colossians 2, verse 2. Because here's some really good news here. He calls us to struggle together. He calls us to struggle together. Colossians 2, verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, Paul's desire for the Colossians, and it is also God's desire for us, is that our hearts would be encouraged and that we would be knit together in love. 
Now let's understand what those, those two phrases mean, okay? Because I fear probably most of the guys maybe checked out on me when they heard these phrases, right? Hearts encouraged and knit together in love. Because if we can be honest, they just sound a little feminine, all right? Uh, I mean, I think encourage my heart might be a good title for a uh, like middle school girls conference. Uh, but most guys are just like, encourage my heart. No, man, come on, get away from that. I do think if we start a knitting ministry, knit together in love would be a good one, a good title. Just put that away in the good idea folder. But hang, hang with me here, okay? Because every man, woman, and child here, we need to understand and hear what he's saying in, the, in this verse. The word encourage, okay, does not mean to coddle or caress, okay? That's not what this word encourage means. What this word encourage means, it, it means to strengthen, to fortify, there's a, there's a comforting aspect to it, but in a way that it strengthens. Okay, a Greek historian used this word when he was describing a military general visiting troops who were discouraged and disheartened and they were cowardly. And this general, what does he do? He encourages them, right? He strengthens them. He fortifies them. He comforts, yes, but in a way that makes them strong and ready for heroic endeavors and ready for battle. That's what this word encourage means. And when the Bible speaks of the heart, don't think of the way our culture thinks of hearts. When we think of hearts, we think of uh, Cupid and babies in diapers and wings and arrows and emotions and roses and all those things. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it's not just talking about your emotions. It's referring to the very center of your being, the very source, not just of how you feel, but your will, the seat of your decision-making, the very center of who you are. And so Paul is struggling on their behalf that their hearts, the very center of their being, their wills, might be strengthened and fortified. And not only that, but that they would be knit together in love. Or you could say that they would be united. He wants to see them strengthened, and he wants to see them united. And church, unity, church unity is such a difficult thing to have amongst people, isn't it? And it's so difficult, it almost seems like, is it worth even trying for it? <laughs> I mean, I grew up in the church, right? I grew up a pastor's kid. I've seen the fights between, like, khakis and jeans and uh, hymns and praise songs and how much vegetation to have in the lobby, right? Like, I've, I've seen that. There's been some serious things that have caused division, but there's also been like some really silly things that have caused church division. And so I come across the phrase like talking about unity and being unified in the church, and I think, is it even worth it? I'm not sure that's even worth going after. Like this is an impossible thing. But church, it is worth struggling for. This passage tells us it is worth struggling for. Why? Because what does Paul say in verses 2 and 3? Why does Paul want us to be strengthened and united together? L look, look at the passage. It gets a little wordy. It gets a little confusing. Let me summarize it. Paul wants us to be strengthened and united together so that we might know Christ. 
He wants us to be strengthened and united together so that we might know Christ, who is the supreme treasure in the universe. He is the most valuable being in all the galaxies. He has infinite worth. He's a sufficient treasure. He does not need anything added to him. In fact, you add anything to him and you actually make the treasure only devalued. This is why you can't add to Christ. You instead just must press into him. And church, we must struggle together in order to know Christ more and more. You need me and I need you. You need the person sitting next to you or the row next to you, and that person needs you to know Christ more and more. And so I want you to just look around. We're going to do this. I know not everyone's sitting next to someone, so we're all going to do this at the same time, but I want you guys to look at one another right now. And if you're at home and you're with someone, look at them, all right? So just look, look around the room, and I want you guys to repeat after me, all right? This is a little dangerous. I realize that, but it's just I, I'm going to say something that's biblical, all right? Look around the room. Look at these people and repeat after me. We must struggle together. To know Christ more. One more, one more. Look, and I want you to look, make eye contact with somebody or at least look at someone's forehead or something so they think you're making eye contact. All right, here we go. We must struggle together. No, you're going to repeat after me. Sorry, all right, repeat after me. That's all right. That's all right. We're still getting used to this like in-person thing. All right. We must struggle together to know Christ more. Good. Good. You see, it is a struggle to strengthen one another. It is a struggle to stay united to one another. But the lie that a false teacher will tell you is that the struggle itself is a bad thing and isn't leading you to real treasure. So avoid the struggle. Cut that person out of your life. Run from that conflict or problem. Go after the fool's gold. It's easier to get to. And some will even justify it by labeling a person toxic, right? Oh, that person's toxic. Just cut them out of your life. How dare you ever call an image bearer of God toxic? Yes, they have sin in their life just like you and me. Yes, they need Jesus just like you and me, but they are not toxic. And it's actually in the struggle. It's in the struggle to strengthen one another and to be united with one another that we understand and know Christ more. Okay? This is why we encourage you to be in community with one another outside of these walls, whether it's in city group or organically in your own homes. This is why our city groups are not just simply Bible studies or Bible lectures. It's because we believe, yes, we can learn about God through the teaching and preaching of his word, which we should always do, but we can also learn a lot about Christ by just rubbing shoulders with one another, by sharing meals with one another, by serving together and living life together. Because when even when things go bad, like when you wrong me or I wrong you and one of us has to forgive the other person, do we not then understand more the forgiveness we've experienced in Christ? And so if the Holy Spirit resides in you and the Holy Spirit resides in me, then as we live life together and as we strengthen one another and as we stay united with one another, then we will know Christ more and more even when it's a struggle. And maybe even especially when it's a struggle.
So we must commit ourselves to one another and to one another's pursuit of real treasure. This is why we even have a thing called covenant membership here. We think it's a biblical thing to call you to commit to one another, even when it's a struggle, especially when it's a struggle. If you're not in a committed relationship, whether it be a marriage or a church covenant or what have you, when difficulties come, you're going to try to find a way out. When you're in a committed relationship with someone and difficulties come, you're going to try to find a way to figure it out, right? Like you're going to press into it more. You're not going to run and try to get around the struggle. You're going to press in, and we think that's the healthiest, most biblical thing. When the struggle comes, to press in, to struggle well together, to strengthen one another and stay united with one another. But listen, this whole knit together in love, it's not, we're not being knit together by a love of ourself or by a hope or a confidence in one another. No, we are being knit together by the love for our true treasure. That's the love that's knitting us together. All right? It's been said that if you want to be disappointed, look at others. If you want to be disheartened, look at yourself. But if you want to be encouraged, look to Christ. And we, we believe that. That's why here on Sunday mornings, right, we are looking to Christ. Looking at others and all around us, man, we're going to be disappointed. Looking at ourselves and just being really introspective, right? And like, we're going to be disheartened. But we look at Christ and we are encouraged. And it is our love for Christ that then knits us together in love. Because it's in Christ where th that are hidden and stored up all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, so now listen as we're kind of, we're, we're, we're pivoting here a little bit to another point, okay? In order to not be deceived by fake treasures, we must see the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom as a means to pursue our real treasure. All right, look back at Colossians 2, verse 2. He writes that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in the Spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, now look a little bit closely there. The second half of verse 2 and verse 3, it starts to get a little confusing. It starts to get a little wordy. And so let's slow down and let's, let's talk through it piece by piece. Let's first talk about God's mystery. God's mystery. Now, certainly there are things uh, about God that we cannot fully get our minds around. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is creator. We are creation. He is infinite. We are finite. However, this mystery of God that Paul is talking about is not one of those things. This mystery can now be understood and known in Christ. In Christ, all right? Paul, Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, just listen to this verse. You don't have to turn there. But Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8, he writes, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay, so when you're looking at the Old Testament, you see sort of like a mosaic of a plan. 
of redemptive history, like how God is going to rescue the world. But it's not linear, right? It's not like just a clearly mapped out plan that everyone can see plainly. It's, It's more of a mosaic. We see in Genesis, for example, that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent one day. We see in Genesis, uh, in in God's promise to Abraham, that through a chosen people, all the nations are going to be blessed. We see uh, that someone in the line of David is going to sit on the throne forever. We see in the prophets that there's going to be a suffering servant that will come. We see in Ruth that there's going to be a kinsman redeemer. We see in Esther that there's going to be a mediator for the people. But it's never like clearly spelled out and laid out for us, right? Why is that? Just make it clear. I think one of the reasons comes to light when Paul's writing this and when he wrote to the Corinthians, one of the reasons was that so that the evil forces, whether demonic or human, uh, would not understand God's rescue plan because if they had, they would not have crucified Jesus. But now that we are on the other side of the cross, in Christ, all the pieces of the Old Testament are starting to come together and make sense. It's it's now no longer a mystery when the work of Christ is understood and the person of Christ is known. And it is therefore now right to say that in Christ are stored up all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And look at Paul's phrasing in verse 3. He writes, hidden in Christ. Hidden in Christ. Now, you've got to understand, he's not talking, he's not saying that God is like hiding this from you, right? He's not, he's not uh, uh, keeping this from you. Really, that phrase, hidden in Christ, is better to be understood as stored up for you in Christ, all right? These things are stored up for us in Christ. Assurance of understanding, wisdom, knowledge are stored up in Christ. They can be found in Christ. And it is in Christ that all of life just starts to make sense. All of history just starts to be unlocked and make sense. It is in understanding the work of Christ and in knowing the person of Christ that you really start to then gain wisdom and knowledge as to who you are and who God is and what separated you from him and God's remedy for that that he's provided. It is in Christ that we start to see and understand God's holiness and righteousness, right? As Jesus lived a perfectly holy and good life that we fell short of living. It's in Christ that we start to see the ugliness of our sin as it took his blood being poured out on the cross just to pay the penalty for it. It's in Christ and his resurrection where we start to understand that his resurrected life is our eternal hope for the future. And all these things in Christ just start to come together and are unlocked for us, right? In Christ, we start to understand what love actually looks like and what grace is and to the extent that forgiveness can be given. All that we need to know about life, all knowledge, right? What you need to know about life and all that we need to understand and how to live. That's wisdom, right? Wisdom is knowing how to live. All knowledge and wisdom can be found and unlocked to us in Christ. In Christ. So listen, treasure hunters. 
all your longing for treasure and your desire for what's valuable and what will last, it was meant to lead you to Christ. Christ is our real treasure. Christ is our real treasure. And listen, you got to understand this, that Christ is your treasure and that wisdom and knowledge are stored up in him because if you don't, if you don't, this is what will happen. Then instead, you will pursue wisdom and knowledge as your treasure. And this is some of you. This is some of you. Knowledge is your treasure, right? You just want to consume more and more information. You just want to know more and more. You just want to keep just learning and growing and knowing. And listen, I am not advocating uh, ignorance. I'm not advocating not growing in your knowledge. I think we all need to be growing in our understanding and our knowledge of God. Nothing's wrong with that. But we should be growing in our knowledge in such a way that knowledge is not our treasure. That the knowledge is not what we are valuing most. Because, listen, when knowledge is your treasure instead of Christ, then at the end of the day, all you will be left with is pride. I know Schoolhouse Rock told you that knowledge was power, but when Christ is not your treasure, knowledge leads to pride. And when Christ is not your treasure, you actually don't find wisdom, but you instead start living like a fool. And so look around. Look around at the world. Some of the most smart, the smartest, most intelligent, most knowledgeable people in the world live as prideful fools. And that's not an accident. When Christ is not your treasure, wisdom and knowledge are that is where you will end up. But listen, your desire to pursue wisdom and knowledge, that desire is a good thing. That's a good desire. But the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge is not ultimately the pursuit of facts, ideas, or data points. The pursuit of wisdom and knowledge is actually the pursuit of a person, and his name is Jesus. Church, the people of God are not to live as prideful fools, but instead they are to pursue Christ as their treasure and enjoy the humility and wisdom that that will be unlocked and produced in them. And then what else does verse 3 say? Look back at Colossians 2, verse 3. It says, To reach the riches of full assurance. Oh, church, I want you to enjoy the riches of full assurance. To be fully assured of who God is and who you are and who you have become in Christ. I want you to know and enjoy the riches of full assurance. But listen, it is a normal part of the Christian life to have some seasons of doubt. It's a normal part of the Christian life to have some seasons of questioning your faith and at times to struggle with your assurance. I've been there, okay? And if that's you this morning, I would say take heart. Like that, that is a part of this, but don't struggle all by yourself. Don't isolate yourself. Like struggle with someone else. Struggle together and know. And know, don't be discouraged, but know. That full assurance 
of who God is and who you are in Christ can be obtained in this life. It sometimes takes years and years of struggling. It sometimes there's waves and seasons of doubt and despair. But it, full assurance can be enjoyed in this life. Because when Christ is your treasure, when he is the most supreme and valuable thing in your life, it is then that you will reach all the riches of full assurance. When Britt and I were in uh, high school, there was a, a, a time just before we started dating, and you kind of know that season right before you start dating, like your friends, you're pretty sure you like one another, you, but you're not, you're not really sure, right? You haven't had that, that assurance, that affirmation, right? But you're, you're pretty sure you like one another. And uh, our high school had this weird day, I'm not even sure uh, what it was all about, but it was a day where all the girls uh, got these, uh, these construction paper cutouts of a heart, and they would write their name on it, and the first guy that they talked to that day, they had to give their paper heart to that guy, and then at the end of the day, uh, the guy with the most hearts won like a, a prize or something. Even as I'm saying it out loud, it, it's kind of strange. I don't know if that's like a thing that we do, but I don't know why we, why, that's not the point. Okay, but the point is, I wasn't there for that day. Um, I actually, I was at my sister Marie's funeral. Uh, for those of you that don't, don't know, I have two sisters, one on earth, one in heaven. Uh, Marie, she was uh, severely handicapped. She was two years older than me, and she passed away when I was in high school. So I was at her funeral, and uh, as I was thinking about Britt, like, giving her paper heart to some other loser at the high school, it just, like, tore me up inside, right? Like, I know it's, I know it's a silly thing. I know I'm probably, uh, you know, on the verge of being, like, way too jealous, but, like, just the thought of her handing that to someone else really tore me up inside. I was kind of uh, just d despairing and, and sad. And, and, uh, and the next day when I uh, showed up at school— Britt uh, Brit pulled her paper heart out of her pocket that she had saved the whole day before, and she gave it to me. And that paper heart, listen, I have treasured that thing. I treasured that thing. Like, I, I folded it up. I put it in my wallet. I carried that pretty much every day for six years or however long we dated. And when we got married, I had it framed with our wedding vows, and it's still in our house to this day, okay? So that paper heart, man, I treasured. And the point is not for you to ooh and ah, Britt and I, and whatever. Uh, that, that's not the point. So let me just get to the point. Okay. I treasured that heart. But, but to anyone else, I mean, to anyone else, that heart is kind of like worthless, right? You can't take it to a pawn shop and sell it. It has no value, but I treasured it. Why did I treasure it? Because that heart symbolized to me Brit's love and acceptance of me, and it assured me that I was her guy. Now listen, some people look at the person and work of Jesus Christ, and they see no value to it. It looks like foolishness to them. They see no value. They don't see what's so precious about the blood of Christ that has been spilt. But then when God does a miraculous work in your heart, 
so that when you look upon Jesus and you look at his life, death, and resurrection and you see his grace, like when, you, when the thought of his supremacy brings you joy and the thought of his sufficiency brings you rest and when you don't want to add anything to him, you just want to press into him more. Like church, when Jesus Christ is your treasure, then you will reach all the riches of full assurance because just like I looked at that heart and it signified to me of Brit's love and acceptance, when Christ is your treasure, you can look upon him and be assured that God loves you and accepts you and has called you his own. Is Christ your treasure? Is he what is most valuable to you? May we struggle. May we struggle on behalf of one another and alongside one another for our church and for our city that more and more of us might come to find and enjoy this treasure. And may we be strengthened and united together in our love of Christ. Is Christ your treasure? Or are you going after fool's gold? Are you adding to Christ instead of pressing into him? May we all find knowledge and wisdom that is stored up in him. And may we all reach the riches of full assurance. Let's pray.